1: Show
0: me the magic Can I take
1: you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the
2: movies What a scene of your Hollywood song Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week that film is 1969's The Magic Christian Uh, This is the film that added A time pressure to the Beatles Let It Be sessions Arguably at a time when they didn't need any more pressures And possibly even contributed to the Beatles Breaking up Uh, Is this film responsible for the breakup of the Beatles? Who's to say? More importantly, is what we got From the film worth it? Let's find out (laughs) Um, so the actual uh, kind of uh, initial synopsis for the film is the world's richest man and his adopted hobo son set out to test the limits of human vanity and greed through a series of money games, in quotation marks. Um, I'm going to say straight off the bat, I didn't immediately get that that's what the film was about.
1: Yep.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it feels less like a plot and more like a loose framework um, by which there are some sketches that are broadly in the same area. Is that what you found?
1: Yes, I think that's very fair. Uh, yeah, so when you call it like a a, a series of uh, sort of money tricks on people, that's exactly what it is. It is a series of things, a series of sketches, essentially. Um, it, 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 basically the same structure as something like Kentucky Fried Movie, where... Uh, you know probably a formative influence on Kentucky Friday but um, it, it, but yes essentially it's a lot of sketches uh, strung together um, uh, the you could be forgiven for sort of reading the synopsis and only then realizing what the whole thing was about um, that, that is broadly what happened happened to me I yeah I had a, a, a I had an idea of, of what was what was going on uh, but I don't think that idea was made terribly clear in general.
2: It, it doesn't help
1: I think that at the
2: start of the movie, I don't know if you found this but the, the, the it feels like there is a lot of setting up that the film does that you can't hear because it's playing a song over the top of what's well, yep. quite a lengthy montage yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> where Peter Sellers uh, the rich man meets Ringo Starr, the hobo young guy and, right. and, and adopts him as his son um, and there's there's conversations between them where it feels like this would be important to listen to. Yes. <laughs> but you can't hear a word of it. Yeah. Well, you, you, can, you can just make out some, some fragments of, of what they're saying. Yeah. And it feels like there's a mix somewhere in that film where the, the music's actually turned down mm-hmm. and actually what you listen to them is actually really important to the setting up of what's about to happen for the rest of the movie. Yes. Uh, yeah,
1: there's, this is exactly what I thought. I um, To the extent that I wondered whether it it was a mistake in the mixing yeah. uh, in in the sound editing um and that maybe you know i needed to get on the phone to talking pictures and uh you know demand my subscription money back not that i've paid the <laughs> money subscription <laughs> money but anyway yeah. um yeah i think it that is a very very strange editorial choice yeah so at the start peter sellers um he gets out of bed he's obviously very rich his uh chauffeur uh, drives him off somewhere and he walks into what I think is St James's Park in London, right. and Ringo is standing on a bridge feeding the ducks. You hear him going up, and uh, and saying something about feeding the ducks, are you? And then the music gets steadily louder until you can't hear at all what they're saying. Mm. Um, and what they're saying is the entire, pre- not quite the entire premise, but the setup of why. Ringo's character is in the film at all Yeah. that Peter Sellers wants to pay him to adopt him legally as his son so that he can help him out with all these uh, tasks and you you, you get he then sort of goes to a business meeting and seems to sign a contract whereby Ringo is now his son so the first time you really hear them talk to each other without that music is where Peter Sellers says uh, right that's it or something Yeah. and Ringo says father and and then you you broadly get what's just happened but uh, but they've made you work for it yeah yeah yeah
2: <laughs> and, and at that point I think we're like 12 minutes into the movie right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but but you, you then also don't get uh, one necessarily why that's that's happened yeah why, why Peter Seller's his character is interested in adopting Ringo Starr in the first place yeah presumably he has some kind of scheme in mind Um. or I, I guess you feel that way the first time upon am watching it but I think I don't think that's true um, but you also don't understand what the what what the next their next plans are, what the next steps are, and mm. that kind of ends up coming about um, later on uh, as the film progresses. Yeah, um, I, it does feel to me. I uh, sort of as an initial reaction to the movie, um, it did remind me immediately of Magical Mystery Tour, Pro- possibly because that was the only other film in a similar kind of style that I'd seen recently yeah. um, having not seen many um, sketch based raunchy early 70s sex comedies <laughs> have you not? <laughs> <laughs> not, not? not this year um, so yeah it feels like um, it's, it reminded me a lot of that film it obviously is one of those films that is clearly so very much what you might say of its time mm-hmm. but also the kind of film that doesn't get made at all these days, and probably for good reason. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and and I guess you know we're really looking at this retrospectively now um, and watching the film and trying to you know pick it apart and appreciate it and and uh, and um, I guess point out its its merits and its flaws. It's quite difficult to do that in a film where it, it feels like the entire movie is just designed to. To be subversive and surreal, yeah, um, in, in a particular way.
1: Yeah, and so it's subversive. I'm sure it was very subversive for its time, um, and I think, in fairness, it, it, it is fairly subversive viewed through today's lens. I think um, one of the interesting things about it is is that it, 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 this must be set. This is set within a context of uh, 1960s sort of countercultural uh arts more broadly than just cinema hmm. that seemed uh, an an awful lot of that including a lot you know including a lot of music including a lot of the work of the beatles themselves seemed to uh have as its primary function the discarding of form and structure mm-hmm. um yeah. whereas i mean the beatles obviously um n- new structure quite instinctively worked within it so even something like revolution nine. I I always think has a, a sort of pretty readable pop song structure yeah. in a way, and, and I think they will have influenced a lot of music and um, cinema. Influences may have come from somewhere else, but they do seem to have uh, this theme of sort of throwing away structure completely as a subversive uh, tactic. You know, yeah. So, but Magical Mystery Tour certainly does that. And you know, sort of Paul talks about how that sort of influenced people like Spielberg um, yes. um where the magical mystery Tour was a direct influence on the magic christian I don't know, but I think um f- formally it kind of throws everything out of the window, and when it ends, it just ends very abruptly yes, you
2: know? yeah, of course and and I think the one of the issues with've that is that I think um it's it a film like this is quite hard for a modern audience to appreciate outside of just an academic view. I think it's it's it's, it's I think there are some moments in the film that are genuinely brilliant and and very 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 funny. Yeah. But on the whole, it's more curio. Like it's it, it becomes a um you, you know it becomes a bit of a time capsule type of movie because it, it doesn't it doesn't really seem like it has a Place um, now for for modern audiences to enjoy it as a, as a as a film as audiences would have been expected to do so in 1969 when it was released.
1: Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you look upon it as a sort of cultural artifact more than yes, a film you actually necessarily want to sit down and watch. Yes. and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, drive yeah, Enjoyment from, I suppose. Yeah.
2: On the basis that this is a film that is a series of long sketches, what what do you think worked better than others?
1: Uh, I think there are bits... Where, so it, 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 so there is a sort of broadly anti-capitalist uh, theme to the the whole thing. The idea is um, a little like Trading Places, I
2: suppose. Yeah, that it's, was a film yeah. that came to mind as well when I was watching this. Trading Places and... Um...
1: No, nope, can't remember the other one. Nope. <laughs> right. Yeah, tra- I mean, Trading Places, even to the extent that there's a guy in a gorilla costume like quite late on, you know. Uh, <laughs> yes, right. <yeah.
2: laughs> Brewster's Millions, that was the one I was oh, thinking of. yeah, 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 yeah of course. So, so, yeah, sort yeah. Of like, so 80s movies are also about a, um, you know, sort of, I guess, um, how how to do funny things with lots and lots of money.
1: Yeah, sort of rich men uh, playing tricks on, on poorer people for their own amusement because they can afford to uh, throw money away. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, there are things that are sort of quite subversive uh, insofar as the actor Lawrence Harvey who is on stage uh, playing Hamlet and he he has been you're not particularly told this you kind of have to figure this out for yourself but he (laughs) he has been bribed by uh, Guy Grand um, Peter Sellers to do a strip tease in the middle of the be or not to be speech. speech yeah. But uh, bits like that uh, don't particularly make me think of a, a, an anti-capitalist thing because essentially you haven't actually seen the money change hands. It hasn't no, really yeah. been made clear to you that money has changed hands at all. And also that is, uh, a bit, by the way, I, I really I wanted to mention this,
2: I thought that sketch was absolutely hilarious. There I is think. a moment in that uh, scene where he um having already started to do quite a slow striptease whilst delivering um like a, a having Hamlet's delivery mm. um he just does like a very quick jaunty leg movement which <laughs> just cracks me up because yeah, it's actually yeah, yeah. it's just this sort of weird flirtatious um like <laughs> moment that he does and i yeah i thought that was hilarious and i thought there is a um there's a there's a possibly even funnier than him doing that there's a moment shortly afterwards where Peter Sellers completely deadpan tells his guests that he's with um, that fellow is taking licence in my view it's so so funny when yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it as a sketch that works really well but um, what ends up confusing the, the, the premise because you're right I think we we're expected to believe that at some point Guy Grand bribed him to do this what confuses that premise is that he then gets carried on upstairs, which light up, and then there's a big zap production um sign that comes into view, to yes. yeah, and yeah. that's that doesn't come from a bribe. So, like, what right. what exactly was were, were the inner workings of this deal? Yeah. Like, it's not he didn't just bribe the actor; presumably, he bribed the whole production, and it just becomes a bit confused.
1: Yeah, it was like, yeah, and I thought the same with the music because there's that sort of uh, standard uh, striptease music that's going on, yeah, that's and I true, wasn't yeah. sure whether it was contiguous or non-contiguous. So, like, are, are, yes, it, yeah. it, is there an actual orchestra playing this? Has he bribed the entire orchestra, or is this music just being superimposed? And I suppose things like that—it's very easy to be picky about things like that, but it does—it it does take you out of the premise. Yeah, and, and a film like Magic Christian, which is trying to make a point, there's lots and lots of opportunities. Or places where it almost encourages you to forget what that point is. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> yes, just through. Some, but again, it's it's that lack of structure that does that. Yeah. Uh, that probably has that effect overall.
2: I mean, we we should. Talk, I mean, while we're on the subject, we should talk about how the uh, the climax of the movie is. Um, and I, I feel like this is a little bit more clear cut um, in that Peter Sellers and Ringo Starr. Um, guy grand and young man grand, grand yeah. young Man grand um they have clearly co-opted the launch of a new ship the magic the magic christian mm-hmm. um and the uh the maiden voyage of this ship is seen as the social event to be at so the the creme de la creme, um the a list a celebrity stars um social elites will be the only people who will be on this ship on its maiden voyage mm-hmm. and it's it's clearer i think that there is a scheme at play mm. that um guy grand and young and grand are planning something with those um passengers what ends up happening is chaos yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and not even chaos that sticks to the premise uh, that has been set up so far but like you know, if if, every, if most of the other sketches have been pushing ideas or, or uh, challenging ideas and concepts around um, money and what people will do for money, there are moments with the passengers on the ship where you just have, for example, Christopher Lee being a vampire, mm, yeah. which has nothing to do with money. No, yes. Yeah. And there's nothing to do with um, uh, anything that is explained that something that Guy... Grand or young and grand might have set up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there it and it just gets more it builds up into sort of just more utter, total chaos, yeah. um, where there's lots of fast edits and you know, there's a guy in a gorilla costume running yeah. around and, like monsters and that kind of stuff. Um and I feel like at that point the film's lost its way. But I also feel like it's not uncommon for a film that of its genre to do that.
1: Yes, true. Yeah, I think it it, it certainly at that point, if well, if it hadn't already you know, sort of half an hour before, has got to the point where it is just, just throwing everything against the wall. I mean, yes. what goes on, on that uh, boat is, 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 I mean, the the whole thing, as I say, doesn't really have any narrative structure. But at that point, it it just descends into madness. You know, Roman Polanski is sitting at a yes. bar, and uh, and by the way, the, 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 seeing as it's supposed to be a boat full of celebrities, maybe they are essentially playing themselves. I don't know. So yeah, he's Roman Polanski sitting at a bar. A drag act starts singing to him. He turns out to be Yul Brynner, yeah. and he's singing mad about the boy uh, to him, which, which contains a line saying, "I'm not, I'm not a schoolgirl in the flush of my first affair," which must have been a big disappointment to Roman Polanski. <laughs> and, and and there's and what's the other one? I think there's like two bodybuilders. Yeah, so there's a guy who's sort of overtly racist in something he says, and then there's a black and a white bodybuilder. And I think do they uh, do they swap heads or something like that? I'm I don't know sure.
2: it's them that swapping heads, but there is yeah, you're right. There is a scene where on the ship there is um, they go and witness like an operation, and it is an i the idea is that it is the first interracial um, head transplant, right? Okay, yeah. and it's been botched because the camera does this very funny thing where you see uh, a, a black man's head, and then over the uh, sheet. You see the feet pointing the wrong way at the bottom. Yeah, so it's a botched interracial head swap. Right. Um, are, are there any other sort of moments in the film that you feel like
1: you particularly enjoyed or or, uh, or didn't? Uh, I think there are the the boat race one. I quite enjoyed. Um, I thought there was because there was some sort of uh, there was some staging in that. There was a bit of spectacle. I um, so um, Guy Grand. Bribes either the Oxford or Cambridge. It's Oxford, he bribes. Yeah, uh, Oxford, he bribes um, to uh, to throw the boat race, uh, but to actually like ram the other boat amidships and smash it in half. Um, Graham Chapman, who uh, at one point he and John Cleese did a pass on the script, I think. So he yes. and John Cleese are in it. So Graham Chapman is sort of the leader of that Oxford boat team. It's quite nice to see him in general. So this is yeah. 69. I think Monty Python's Flying Circus was first on TV in 69. So they would not have been terribly well known. At I the think point. this
2: was... I, I could be wrong. I need to check my timelines. I thought that this was pre-Monty Python's Flying Circus. I think it is, yeah. Um, I think,
1: they might have been known from sort of other TV things. But yeah. No, I think well, I no. think they're
2: on board as writers. I think they, they contributed sketches to the, um, the script and then presumably as a result of their work on it ended up being in in the film. Yeah. Um the 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 scene that I was um going to say that I particularly enjoyed was the um auction scene at Sotheby's with John Cleese because yeah. I think he is brilliant. He really makes yeah. that scene come alive. So yeah. it is um a, a Rembrandt for sale and Guy Grant um rather than let it go to auction uh, essentially he doesn't bribe the John Cleese auctioneer character, but he basically says that he will pay over twice the amount that it's expected to go for, um, and then, having made that agreement, proceeds to to cut the nose out of the off the portrait, um, mm. and and says keep that, and then burn the rest. Mm. Um, and and it's but it's John Cleese's like shocked face, yeah. and then he also has that brilliant moment where he says, um, uh, like thirty thirty, I think it's thirty thousand. Pounds that um, guy grants willing to pay for it, and he like stutters over thirty thousand pounds, and then says, "Shit!" <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's right,
1: and yeah. there's it, a real like,
2: there's a real cut immediately after that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, he John Cleese is particularly um, brilliant in in that scene, and and dare I say, it, um, arguably sort of steals that scene, I think, from Peter Sellers, who is otherwise mm-hmm. doing a very good job throughout the whole film in, in being a, a funny character.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, to go back to John Cleese, I think John Cleese has always been expert at playing slightly stuck-up establishment yes. figures who have their bubble pricked in some way. Yeah, uh, yeah, And, yeah, he's excellent in that. And in Monty Python sketches, he's always playing that character. He's always yeah. playing a sergeant major or a head teacher, or, or you know, the, the person who you like to see get their comeuppance in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah but it, but I think sort of going back to Peter Sellers uh, yes I mean he's this film is all his really yeah um, and um, it, it, he's sort of in charge of all the scenes he is the one um, making everything happen so there's the, there's the one in the restaurant this is a very expensive restaurant he goes in and uh, he orders whatever whatever food he, is, the it's duck, caviar, du- he has. It's caviar, yeah. Caviar, duck a l'orange, and yeah. um, and then he sort of he gets them to put a sort of big uh, tarpaulin on him, and then he just with his hands slams the whole thing into his face, and he eats it that way. Um, yeah. Again, it's like it, it, in terms of the uh, the point being made about everyone's got a price is sort of the point that he's trying to make mm. and I suppose the point the film's trying to make um, <laughs> I don't know I mean <laughs> that's where I fall down the, the, yeah. the, what the, <laughs> I, I, I know what point that character is is, is yes. trying to make um, but w- w- what the film is taking from that um, you know uh, is it sort of money is bad? You know, there's a big sign on a wall right near, near the end saying smash capitalism. But I, I don't particularly feel like the film is anarchic. Certainly, yeah, uh, it's anarchic in that, um, like John Cleese, the John Cleese character, the, the straight society is being disrupted mm. by weirdos, you know? And I think, and there's a lot of that, uh, that's a big theme of sort of sixties counterculture in general. Um, right from the sort of well i mean right from elvis in the 50s you know and up until i mean the beatles themselves certainly did that you know um rolling stones came along they were even more shocking you know Yeah. and, uh, and but when you get into the sort of mid 60s uh, you know the psychedelic period if you want to call it that uh it, it, you know this idea that the people are growing their hair long and they're not wearing ties anymore. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, which is a really big deal at the time. You know, that's the thing. It's it's, it's, re- yeah. it's really hard to appreciate now how big a deal it was now. But I mean, uh, d- just the idea of anyone just sort of getting up and, and, and sort of shouting in a theatre or something like yeah. that, you know, it's just, it just so far away from um, what British society in particular was like at that time. Uh, and, and what they're doing time and again in these sketches is going into a place where there is an established orthodoxy um a sort of uh, fairly posh middle class one hmm. and disrupting it and and not that that is a point it's making because it's more of it's it, it's more of a or uh, it's more of a theme than it is a sort of narrative i yes. suppose yeah yeah i think you're right
2: yeah and i think that um uh, i think that when you say that you know what the characters plan is uh, what what his motivation is uh, in the film? I feel like you only know that, we only know that because there is a synopsis that explains that. But <laughs> actually, it doesn't necessarily enter in the movie because, like you say, the restaurant scene is a good example of. Um, uh, the synopsis implies that Guy Grand is testing people's limits for um, their own price like you know how how to what extent everyone is corruptible and to what extent to what price does it take for them to corrupt their their core beliefs yeah um but actually the restaurant scene is just something that where that doesn't really get challenged and actually what is being challenged there is i guess societal etiquette but i think ultimately probably doesn't need to be read too much into because it's just played for laughs yeah. yeah right like that. someone has written that you know what, what, someone has approached that sketch with um what would be funny for someone to do they had um uh, limitless amount of money yeah. and this is what they came up with yeah. and it's broadly tied into this idea of, of of anti-capitalism but it's not really
1: yeah yeah and and actually i would be very interested to know which bits chapman and cleese wrote that restaurant sketch yeah for me kind of has their fingerprints all over it I mean, it's the same thing as Mr. Creosote, Exactly, that's Uh, what I was going to say, yeah, very similar. And, you know, so it is someone uh, who has been allowed into a very posh restaurant because they themselves are very posh and very respectable and behaving very, very badly when they get there. It's the same kind of thing. And I mean, that that is a pretty constant theme through lots and lots of Monty Python material uh, in general, I think.
2: So, um, moving away from Peter Sellers... um, this is Ringo Starr's first major starring role in the movie, so I think I'm right in thinking that um, in the Beatles films, um, he was generally seen deemed to be the better actor of yeah. the Fab Four. Yeah. So, do you think this was his real first test as an actor, sort of breaking away from the the, the Beatles and him going it alone um, to sort of see whether
1: or not acting was a was an actual feasible career for him? Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting way to frame that question because I wonder whether he was thinking at that time about it, it, is acting a career I want to pursue? Mm. Um, because, you know, there's the thing... Um, you see that kind of footage in, I think it's about 67, and certainly they've all got Sergeant Pepper moustaches and they're all kind of turning up at Abbey Road and being in... because uh, they just stopped touring and although they haven't particularly told anyone that they've stopped touring mm-hmm. and they haven't done anything or been seen for quite a few months and so the reporters are saying um, you know what are you doing with your time now and and John Paul and George are all saying well you know you know, we could sort of writing songs and like George's been to India and stuff like that and a Ringo just says, "Well, I'm kind of out of it that way. I don't really have a sort of creative outlet." Yes, and and he th- I think he says, "Well, yeah, there may be a film next year if we do one together," but he he doesn't seem to be considering a career beyond the Beatles necessarily. Mm. Um, but I I wonder if 1969 is a slightly different uh, spin on that as far as he's concerned. Um, so chronologically, we're just at the point where you know if you've watched the documentary, Get Back what is what you what is now being filmed in the Magic Christian is happening about two or three weeks later yeah it's is crazy like isn't it putting that in context in yeah. that way yeah, yeah. exactly but um, so I suppose previously when we all thought that the Let It Be sessions were terrible and they were all splitting up and they hated each other then we might have thought Ringo is now thinking I really want to get into this film thing because the Beatles are not going to last very long hmm. now you know we know that context a bit better after Get Back um it, it, they were already having conversations about the next album. Um, he uh, probably thought, well, this, yeah, this is the thing I can go away and do. I quite yeah. like doing films. He and Peter Sellers became really good friends. I think they? on, it, okay. they're sort of on, on the set. I think I don't think they knew each other particularly well before that. Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure whether he was thinking about it in in career terms.
2: He had another acting role before this, didn't he? What was that
1: in? Uh, yeah, it's, it's 1968. There's a film called Candy he was in, uh, which you broadly I've not seen, but from I watched the trailer this afternoon, and you would uh, broadly describe it as a I don't know about sex comedy. Well,
2: another one of those. Just a, yeah. I yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't know if he scene. had range, but he knew what he liked.
1: Yeah, quite right. Uh, which he seems to be in. Uh, playing a uh, Mexican or Spanish uh, gardener, uh, complete with accent and oh. and complete with uh, tan. Oh. So, oh, I think it's uh, uh, of, of its time. It's fair to say. Okay, but another, hey, another
2: yeah. film that we have to <laughs> caveat with of its time. Oh, good. Yeah.
1: But hey, you know, uh, neither of us has seen it. Um,
2: who knows? You know, I'm sure we'll get around to it eventually uh, yeah. on one of these episodes. Um, so he was. So he'd already appeared in that film. Um, do you think if, if this was some kind of test for him um, and to see how well he could stand on his own two feet as an actor outside of the Fab Four? Um, how well do you think he fared? What do you think his performance? Would you? How do you rate his performance in the film?
1: I think it, I think it's good. I think it's it's hard to it's hard to judge without seeing it through the prism of that's Ringo Starr and I like Ringo Starr yeah um he the thing the thing that he, he is a real problem for him uh right off the bat is that his character has no narrative reason to exist <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's quite a challenge for any character isn't it? yeah
1: <laughs> exactly um because i think so apparently uh it's this based on a book from 1959 and, yes. and a, a, sorry, I forget the guy's name who wrote maybe it was Terry Cousins, maybe or something like that, who wrote the book. But he co-wrote wrote the screenplay, and apparently the character of uh Youngman Grand did not exist in the book. That's right, yes, as I understand as well, yeah. It was about uh it was just about the Guy Grand character going around doing this stuff. And so when you look at it, uh there's no reason that Guy Grand's Needs anyone with him to do any of this because he's very rich. Uh, he doesn't need, there's even less reason for him to adopt anyone legally as his son in order to do it. There may be, there are things where he's sort of introduced in, in business meetings, as you know, this is my son, and I think it's, you know, the idea that he'll be taking over from him. I'm not sure that's yes. he said, but that doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything else. Um, so R- Ringo's character, like I say, there isn't any reason for him to be there. And I suppose what happens, um, uh, just from a screenwriting point of view, is when you have a character who doesn't need to exist, um, you you probably end up giving them throwaway lines. and uh, And I get the impression that Sellers was a bit of a ste- uh, scene stealer as well. Yeah. Um, so he gets uh, he he gets eclipsed uh, quite a lot. I think it, you know he he has funny lines and they're well delivered. You can't really ask any more of him than that because he's yeah. given a lot to do. You know? I,
2: th- I think it's, so. There's a couple of things there that I think that first of all, the author's name is Terry Southern, which I'm not. I'm not uh, picking you up on that um, in a mean way. Yeah. I've just googled it whilst you were talking. Right, but Terry is pretty close. <laughs> to be fair, yeah, there's a, a few yeah. consonants out of place, but yeah, pretty good. Um, uh, and it's also interesting to note that so he's it's based on a comic novel that came out I think uh, roughly ten years before. Peter Sellers gave it to Stanley Kubrick as a uh, gift and Stanley Kubrick ended up hiring to co-write Dr. Strangelove. Just as a random aside there about uh, the history of the author of that book. But I think that um, there are, there's quite a lot of trivia around the film which has to be said... Um, isn't necessarily verified I don't know where some, you know like IMDB trivia I don't know where it comes from like there's yeah, yeah, someone yeah. who has interpreted like like four generations worth of information to arrive at a pithy uh, trivia note but there's quite a lot about how Peter Sellers was quite dominating in, in the film so one of the trivia tidbits is that he um deliberately had John Cleese's role downplayed so that uh 'cause he was worried that he might upstage him in right. that in that scene that he's in. Um there's also um uh a mention I think in, in one of the um trivia items that Peter Zellers would deliberately say or incorporate Ringo Starr's dialogue into his own. <laughs> which which is <laughs> as a as if you imagine that Ringo Starr might be seeing this as his big break <laughs> it's, it's probably a little bit disheartening um, but yeah you can. I, I guess he's just one of those characters isn't he I, I don't know an awful lot about Peter Sellers as a person um, I don't know how much of a reputation he has for being that kind of um, challenging actor to work with but you can imagine that he is someone who is difficult to um, control on set or, or handle on set so you can imagine that he that that as a as a newcomer to acting, that that might be quite a difficult thing to contend with. Yeah. So on that basis, I think Ringo Starr actually does a really good job of holding his own opposite sellers yeah. without much material to work with, yeah. because apparently <laughs> according to IMDb, it's been stolen from him. <laughs> <laughs> right? But yeah. Um, but yeah, I think he holds his own. I think there are a couple of moments in the film where he actually does get his own moments, and those are and he's brilliant in those. There's the bit where. Um, Spike Milligan's the parking ticket inspector, and the whole while he's arguing with Peter Sellers about the ticket, and Peter Sellers is basically going to bribe him to eat the ticket to mm. get rid of it. Um, all during that dialogue conversation, Ringo Starr is reading a book about, I think it's symmetric mm. exercises, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's doing like you know outstretched yawn faces and tiny faces, and, oh, stuff. Yeah. and that is, and the, his delivery of that is actually pretty. Brilliant and yeah. funny, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. And that, that shows like a, a, a physical comedy side to him that basically isn't present in the rest of the film. Yeah. 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 It's just really good to see. I think that I think that there's there's almost more that he that could have been made of that side of that character, um, of him doing stuff like that that's just quite funny in the background. Yeah,
1: certainly. I suppose the like, the interesting thing is that uh like you've got a you've got a beetle in your film, lads. Yeah. Like, you know, um, still pretty popular at the time you know (laughs) and still still doing alright now in terms of popularity you know like you would have thought that they'd I don't mean that they would rewrite the entire thing to get him in apparently the 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 role was written with John Lennon in mind right um, okay and I don't know whether it got as far as him being asked to do it and turning it down. Yeah. So yeah. certainly Ringo ended up doing it.
2: But it was always seen as a as a Beatle vehicle of some kind. Or a vehicle for one of the Beatles of some kind, perhaps.
1: I suppose so. It has enough beetle elements in it that it sort of suggests that, doesn't and, it? And and we
2: were we were talking before we start recording this that the director, um who I'm I'm going to look up again because 'cause I've forgotten his Joseph name. Joseph McGrath? Joseph McGrath, thank you, yeah. Um, prior to making this film had directed some of the very early music videos uh, for the Beatles, so there is a connection there that exists before he comes to direct this movie. Yeah. So I guess it does make sense in us in a way that it he ends it ends up becoming sort of beatle focused in some way. Yeah. Um, and and there are we, we should talk about the fact that there are other elements of the Beatles that creep into this film as well. So um, I don't know if you noticed but the passengers that arrive on the ship, the Magic Christian, uh, at the time, there is a John and Yoko lookalike that board the, the ship. Yeah. Um, there's also, I, I I couldn't find any references anywhere online, but I'm pretty certain that um, when there's a big reveal after all the chaos on Magic Christian, and all the passengers come uh, and basically evacuate the ship and then they realise um, hilariously... That they're actually um, they've been on a on a stage set the entire time. and yeah. They're actually in the middle of London. Yeah. Um, then one passenger gets off with a life like boat thing around him, a life jacket around him, and he sees Tower Bridge. I think it is. Um, and he says, "That's Tower Bridge," and the camera cuts to Tower Bridge. And I'm pretty sure that what plays over that is the final chord of A Day in the Life.
1: Oh, oh, the big piano chord. It's a big, like it's a big, yes, long,
2: epic horn. But it's also not even just they've like, recreated it. It sounds like it's exactly the same. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so there's, there's those couple of Beatles elements they brought into it. Yeah. And then obviously the big one is that Paul McCartney uh, wrote the theme song. Was well, so it was essentially a theme song for the film Come and Get It.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so yeah, and I suppose the interesting thing about that is like it, it, its lyrics are, uh, its lyrics have a lot to do. Uh, with what happens in the film or what the theme is of the film, you know, so come and get it. Come and get it. The lyrics sound a lot like, um, uh, like he's just sort of taking them from an advert, you know, because mm-hmm. you, you, you hear and read a lot about Beatles in uh, John and Paul in that period who had just been watching something on TV and just sort of taking one line from it and building a song around it, you know. And you come and get it, you know, it's yeah. Lyrics are, um, you know, you better hurry because it's going fast, and things like that. It's exactly the kind of thing you get in a in a uh, advertising slogan. Um, will you walk away from a fool and his money? Um, which, you know, a and, and guy grand being the the fool with the money in that in that context, I suppose. So, I mean, yeah. I, I suppose I don't know, but what interests me is, uh, was McCartney given a brief like, here is the script? So, so we know that he demoed this in the. Abbey Road sessions, right? Okay. So certainly, yeah. So I suppose if you think of the timeline, I'm only just realising this as I say it actually, but yeah, if you think of the timeline, so uh, the Get Back slash Let It Be sessions are in January. In that, you see Dennis Odell saying to Ringo, well, not just saying to Ringo that the script, you know, here's the script, and Ringo says, "I haven't read it." <laughs> uh, um, uh, but the thing is about to begin shooting, so they must have shot the whole thing when he comes up with that song because he demos it in I think about August he gets into Abbey Road a bit earlier than everyone else during the Abbey Road sessions and he uh, demos it piano, bass, drums and, and a vocal so, track
2: sorry, so let me get that straight so do you think he's written that before then um, it becomes a commission for this movie y- yeah,
1: so he, he must have um, well, the, the movie I guess if it begins shooting in February has probably already been shot by August. Yeah, sure, yeah. And in fact, when is it... Yeah, so that we we know that he demos this song uh, during the Abbey Road sessions. I think it was in August. So the film, uh, I'm presuming, if it started shooting in February 69, has been shot by August. Mm-hmm. It, 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 therefore, you presume that he uh, knows the theme of the film or maybe yeah. has even seen a rough cut of it. Yeah. So but what I don't know is whether... He, he, someone said to him can you write us a, a song for this film here's the theme of it or, and, and therefore he writes those lyrics deliberately See, there
2: was a thing that I read uh, I don't know where I I, um, I, read this it might have been the Wikipedia page for the song um, because that's, that's the extent of my research on these things let's be honest sure, sure. Um, <laughs> there was something that I read that, that said that he'd written the song about the, um, the last throes of Apple um, the Apple business that he set up, with the Beatles, and right. and the sort of the, the failures of that, but um, it feels like I mean he could be drawing on both, right? Mm. There's 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 a there's a song that is required that is clearly about money being thrown about, and and actually there's a, a history that that he could you know that sort of informs this a similar kind of scenario, so um, you, you can imagine that that he's he's drawing on or he could be drawing on both there. Probably more likely that he's doing that than he has written a song about a full passing ways of money, and it just so happens that one of his bandmates is going to be in mm. the film Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that is about the same thing. Yeah, but I'm a... I'm really intrigued to to uh, know how he became involved in the project. I think that's a really interesting sort of area that there doesn't need to be a lot of information about. Um, like, at what point did whilst Ringo having signed up to star in a film. At what point was Paul McCartney approached, or in a room where the idea came up that actually maybe he could contribute a song to it, and then he just went ahead and wrote a song, demoed a song, and then auditioned the band essentially to to then perform that song, yeah, for him, yeah, on the on the on the on the uh, movie soundtrack.
1: Yeah, so I think um, essentially what happened. I mean, so one other thing about those lyrical themes is that they're there. Mm in uh, You Never Give Me Your Money as well, which, yes. which he is writing r- around the same time, I guess. And,
2: and, so, and the one thing I was going to point out was that I, I don't know if it's because of that the similarity to that song in terms of themes uh, or because of the way that the piano is played in the song in Come and Get It. Yeah. But when I first heard it, I felt like it definitely would have had a place in the Abbey Road medley. It yeah. feels like it fits in really well with the style of those those songs that they run through
1: yeah no you're right i never thought of that that makes a lot of sense um i think um uh so co- come and get it is as i say it's a song that uh paul writes and demos quite quickly um it it, it feels to me a, a slightly half finished song in a way yes. i think yeah. it's, its melody is great it's essentially one lyrical refrain that repeats it's got no second verse in the second verse, some of its lyrics are, mmm, 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 make your mind up fast. <laughs> and there is
2: a bit, you know. Classic get out. <laughs> right, I mean, right. Not right. finished a song. But, but, yeah, like, but... you know, for a fact he was on a deadline. He was like, you know what? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. This I've got be... that second verse sorted.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, and there's a bit where, it, you know, the sort of, will you walk away from, his, from a fool and his money? It sort of turns into, like, fool and his money where he just sings fool and his money yeah is, you know it is. it seems kind of half finished anyway but uh, but what he it, it, what he does is he demos it and he gets an acetate of that demo and the band uh, Bad Finger who were yes. a uh, Welsh band who were signed to Apple Records he takes it to them and says record it exactly like this and it'll be a hit um, yes because he knows a thing or two about hits you know um, I and um, and I think they there's not it doesn't change very much from his demo, which you can hear on the anthology, and I think maybe the Abbey Road Deluxe fiftieth anniversary. Oh, is it on that one? as well? It's on anthology three, but yeah, you're probably right. Uh, it's yes. probably on the Abbey Road Deluxe um, as well. So it, it, it's got they've added some harmonies and stuff, and oddly as well, the way that uh, the way that Badfinger singer sings it sounds quite a lot like John Lennon. Um, oh, do you think? I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think there may be something about sort of vocal treatments that people were doing at that time, Lennon included, that made people's voices sound, sound right. quite similar. I'm not I'm not completely sure.
2: He was always quite funny about his voice, wasn't he, Jonathan? Like, he was always doing stuff to it. And, um, and yeah. he, he, was, he had a bit of a complex, I think, about his voice. So yeah. you're probably right. I, I th- I'm sure I've read somewhere along the way that, um, uh, that some of the tricks that were pulled in the studio in order for him to sort of sound or make his voice sound different um, ended up becoming sort of you know tried and tested techniques that are then put uh, that are then used throughout sort of recording um, songs going forward yeah yeah absolutely uh, It sounds about right Yeah, I, I never got the impression for the song that he sounded like John Lennon actually I, I think maybe because to me as soon as it started it sounded to me like a Paul Knightley song mm. so I, I, sh- I should point out that when I first watched the film and that song came on um, I got really confused because I recognised it as a Beatles song. I recognised it as a song that I knew really well, yeah. so I assumed it was a Beatles song because I was watching the Ringo Starr movie. But I just couldn't place the the song. Yeah. And then Googled it um, as all our research is done, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I discovered where it came from. But I I still I'm still not sure whether or not I know the song so well because I've heard it on the Beatles records. Like subsequently, the the Paul McCartney demos. Yeah. Or whether actually it is a fairly well-known song in its own right outside of, you know, the hardcore Beatles fandom. Considering it's a it's a Peter Sellers starring vehicle, um, he's always he was obviously already a massive star at the time of making this film. Mm-hmm. Um, the film, I think, bombed generally, which I guess you know, watching it now is is. Is understandable <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, or no wasn't surprise, received, right? So, oh. Wasn't received, right? Um, but um, for the for the case that Ringo Starr um, had a lead role in it, and be- that Paul McCartney wrote a song for it, and there is there are you know those other couple elements of um, the Beatles being introduced into that film, it feels like it should be more remembered. Uh, among sort of Beatles community or or Beatles fan community or, or whatever, um, mm-hmm. it should feels like it should be a, uh, have a higher profile than it does. Yeah, um, but it do, has kind of just been forgotten about. I think.
1: Yeah, and I, I think I think there are films uh, that Beatles went off and filmed that are sort of better known in the context of uh, of their career. We now have a bit more context about Magic Christian because it is the reason why. They had to complete the Let It Be sessions in thirty days or whenever it was, but it, 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 for years we didn't. I suppose so. Films like How, How I Won the War, um, mm-hmm. people know because it's where John Lennon shot it in Spain, and he wrote Strawberry Fields there. And so you know, they, is that why that film's remembered? Though I feel like I feel like it's that has a, um, a higher
2: profile among sort of the, the context, the wider context of the Beatles. I guess because it's seen as John Lennon's first major acting role. Like he, he, you know, he digressed from the path of being a Beatle for a short stint in order to try out being an actor and then came back again. And I feel like that's sort of an important milestone among thousands of milestones in the Beatles' career. Yeah. Uh, Whereas this, Ringo Starr essentially doing the same thing, albeit right at the very tail end of the Beatles, um, just kind of has been largely forgotten.
1: Yeah, yeah. And while it is probably fair to say that uh how I won the war uh it, it has been no more uh or less widely seen than the Magic Christian. No, yeah, you're right. I, I just think um I I think it's something that just people are more aware of probably. Is, it, is it more
2: credible? Like is it uh maybe because it was better received? I don't know if it was, uh, without you know, looking it up, but like I, I kind of have an a, a view that um rightly or wrongly that the film I, I guess yeah has a bit of more of a credible standing whereas Magic Christian I guess is probably been dismissed over time as um uh surreal um you know uh irreverent sex raunchy comedy thing you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. we keep coming back to the sex comedy yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, there isn't not, that much sex not, there isn't much I, don't know why. I why, don't know why why do we we're... keep talking
1: about <laughs> sex Matt it's not me <laughs> um
2: <laughs> but there is, there, is there, are, there are elements of that in there right there are yeah, elements yeah. Of, um, of, of you know I mean for, there's an entire scene where they discover the hull of the ship mm. um, where you have um, is it's Jane Fonda cracking the whip of it's Racco Welch oh it's Racco Welch of course it is yeah of course Racco Welch um, uh, cracking the whip of, of you Know hundreds of topless women who are all supposed to be rowing the boat, yeah. Um, which is made even more pointless when it later becomes a a reveal minutes later that it's not even a real ship, that isn't even being rowed. No, (laughs) No, yeah, yeah, yeah. what were they even doing there? But there are are scenes in the film where there are, you know, there's sort of gratuitous um female nudity, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I guess it's, I guess it kind of. Falls slightly within that genre of sort of, you know, sex comedy status. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well justified. Yeah. Thank you.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's not <laughs> us. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not. Nice. Um, but yeah, I think maybe, maybe that's one, one of the reasons, of reasons why it's been largely forgotten it's because it, it is seen as a little bit more um, trashy, a little bit less um, like it has a, a, a like it's an important part of cinema history, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I suppose, you know, w- w- with how I won the war, because that was in 1966 when they just stopped touring and, and they all sort of went off and did other th- things. George went to India for the first time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Paul went off to France and then uh, Kenya and stuff like that. You know, they did a lot of traveling and stuff. And that was what John did. He went out to Spain and sort of. And I suppose it is maybe associated as a milestone a bit more yes. because. Uh, that was the point at which uh, that was the point at which they all kind of start to diverge have kind of slightly more individual personalities and interests and, and stuff like that you know uh, yeah, yeah. I think, no, there's, I think there's I a, a, there's a there. broader context there Yeah,
2: but we can dig into that when we have a future episode uh, discussing famous sex comedy How
1: I Won the <laughs> War <laughs> um,
2: anything more to add on Magic Christian or should we
1: wrap up no no let's wrap it up I think that's right
2: so um, if you've enjoyed listening to us um, then please uh, hit like subscribe to our podcast um, write a review um, do all the other things that podcasters normally say at this juncture Um, you can also follow us on uh, social media accounts normally at Beatles Films Pod I think on uh, all the neutral platforms Um, and yeah thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode thanks bye
1: bye